Welcome to Talking Scared. I'm Neil McRobert, your host, or for this one week only, your captain, as we sail some deeply treacherous waters in search of the perfect murder mystery. The guest this week is none other than Stuart Turton, the author of 2018's mega-hit, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and he's back with his new novel, The Devil in the Dark Water. It's already been considered as one of the publishing events of the autumn, and, and for good reason. If any of you have ever read Evelyn Hardcastle, you'll know how adept Stu is at toying with genre and spinning convention on its head and putting together the most ridiculously intricate plots. The Devil in the Dark Water takes all of that and sets it adrift on the most sinister seafaring voyage imaginable. Stu is a fantastic guest and he's also the first fellow Brit I've spoken to for the show, which suggests to me that we we need more big horror releases from, from new and interesting British authors. Any suggestions are welcome. Stu's also a northerner, and we've done our best to modulate our accents and keep the local slang to a minimum. And I hope we have anyway, as I can see that we have listeners now from all around Europe and North America, as well as Australia, Brazil and Colombia. God bless the internet. But it's devils we're interested in this week, not gods. So let's raise anchor. We're leaving port, and who knows what's on board with us. Let's talk scared. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. No, it's good to have you here. Your new novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, is out on October 1st, and it's being greeted as one of the big publishing events of the year, so this must must be a fairly busy time for you. Are you, like, inundated with press at the minute? I am. It's absolutely terrifying, because it's they hold you up and they're like, yes, this is going to be a big event. And that's really up to the readers and people who actually buy the book. So if no one turns up and nobody buys it, no one reads the damn thing, it just looks ridiculous. So I'm constantly in a state of terror at the moment. I'm always keen to kind of avoid spoilers on this show. Um, And with your Mm -hmm. books, that's more important than ever, but also quite a bit more challenging than with most books because they're so packed with incident. But to save me ruining things from the start, can you give us a summary introduction to The Devil and the Dark Water? I definitely, I can definitely try. This is a book that I found really hard to elevate a pitch um, for various reasons. But at the moment, my elevator pitch for it is that it's a supernatural, seafaring, Sherlock Holmes-style mystery. So it's set on a boat in 1634 that's travelling from Batavia, which is now Jakarta, going all the way over to Amsterdam on a 10-month voyage. But they set out to sea, and weird supernatural things start to happen, culminating in an impossible murder. And it looks like there may be a demon aboard the ship, and it looks like somebody may have summoned that demon. Thankfully, the world's greatest detective is on board the ship to sort it out and solve the mystery. But that detective is in chains and is a prisoner on the ship, and you don't know what that detective has done. So it's left to his sort of Watson-style character, his sidekick, to take up the slack and try and solve the mystery in his stead. So he's got some help along the way from some of the other passengers. But it's very much, if anyone's ever read my first book, Seven Deaths, it's got a lot of the same sort of feel. It's a very sort of like creepy, claustrophobic book. There's lots of horror, gothic influence in it. Everyone on the ship has got secrets. Everybody could have done these crimes. Everybody has something to hide. And everybody could murder somebody else at any other minute. So, yeah, it's a, I think hopefully it's a big, fun adventure mystery book. Yeah, that's about as much as you can kind of say without giving away 
anything crucial because I can't remember the last time I've ever read a book where there is so much incident on a page by page, chapter by chapter basis. God, I love incident. It, it, that does come through. That that does come through. <laughs> you, you, you're not a man who is afraid of plot. I would say no, definitely not. I mean, I love plot based books anyway. So, but for me, I want the every chapter. I want to feel like it's zigging away from the book that you thought you were getting in the chapter before. And I find the best way to do that is to constantly throw things at my characters and have to have them react in strange and unusual ways. And I also use that actually because in the writing of books, when I do that, I I discover who my characters are. So I intricately plot my novels. I take three months before I start a book to plan it all out, and I know the first page to the last page before I ever begin. But what I don't know are the characters. Like, I don't know who they are. I don't know necessarily i generally know what their jobs are but their interior lives like what they're afraid of what they like for breakfast weirdly these things do matter to me and i do discover that through the writing like how they react to the characters on the ship who they like who they will befriend so what ends up happening is that i throw a lot of stuff at my characters they react and then i find that they're not doing the things that i want the plot to do them anymore because as a person they wouldn't do that thing so i've got to bend the plot around them so you end up getting even more incident so my books kind of evolve in this really strange sort of planning versus panting kind of way so that was one of the questions i was going to ask you because i was going to say i i i couldn't imagine you were a pantser i I imagine you had to be a planner but you actually plan it all in advance you've got an, an entire trajectory for the plot before you even put pen to paper is that right yeah that's absolutely right but then i'm not afraid to sort of like knock it around a little bit like all the major beats will still happen according to my plan but they may not be in the hands of the character i thought or be driven by the character i thought they were going to be driven by so if that character sudden so in this book for example there's a noble woman called sarah who becomes part of the, the one of the three main characters in the story she initially, in my plan, didn't have anywhere near as much to do as she ended up having to do. And it was because I started writing her, she became a fascinating character to me. She became more interesting to me. And she became, she started like banging at the pages. It was almost like she wanted more to do. She And she started taking things from other characters. And it became far more of this, yeah, these three central characters rather than two characters and a, like an almost sidekick to the sidekick. So, yeah, I tried to read because I didn't do that with Seven Deaths, which was my first book, and I really regretted it. That one was very, it had to be planned the way it was planned because it could only it could only work that way. But I didn't give myself the room to kind of find my characters in it. So I was determined with this book to change that around a bit. I do get that. I, I understand that, you know, characters evolve and then they do unpredictable things. But in, 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 in such tightly, densely plotted books as these is that not incredibly stressful when a character starts pulling against your uh, your original plan mate every day of writing a book is incredibly stressful and it's the stupidest thing in the world because it should be the most stress-free job in the world but especially for me the way i write books is effectively like i'm i don't know like i'm setting to sail on a boat that i'm building that's what it feels like it's just like i'm hammering planks beneath myself and stitching sails as i'm halfway across the ocean i know where i'm going and i kind of know how i'm getting there but the rest of it is a complete mystery so i and what i like to do anyway is i only write book i've only written two i talk like i've written 15 million books and know what i'm actually doing but what i've discovered in the two books 
they, they take me two years at least each. Uh, seven deaths took me two and a half. This one took me two. Uh, and just three months of plotting for both of them at the beginning. It took me a good old long time. And I I only really tackle books that I'm uncertain of. So I, if I don't quite know if I can pull it together, if I don't quite, because what I do is I try to mash genres up, which I guess we'll come into our conversation a bit later on. But this book is very much a sort of mystery horror, maybe just supernatural gothic-y thing with a, a touch more historical fiction to it. And Seven Deaths was a sci-fi book mixed in with a Agatha Christie murder mystery. And I, in both cases, I didn't know if those genres would smash together particularly well. And I didn't know even if they did whether I'd be the person who could pull them off or could write them or write the story that I had in mind. So I like that challenge. I like starting off with that fear and keeping that fear every day because truthfully, in both books, I didn't know until right near the end that they were actually going to work, or at least they were going to work to my satisfaction. I can't speak to whether readers will actually like them or not. Well, well, I think everyone loved Evelyn Hardcastle, and after having read this one, I think it's going to be a resounding success. How do you? So I get this, the idea of like flying with the city of pants, the idea of fear, the idea of challenge. I get all that. How would you even begin to map all the connections and the red herrings and all, all, all the details? Because in, in both books, you've got this kind of like almost dramatis personae of um, of characters at the start. You know, you've got a set established. Um, roster of characters that inhabit a singular space that's the connective tissue between the two books I would say mm. and then they all have connections with each other like it's, it's, it's this web so how do you begin to even map that it stresses me out thinking about it I always start in both books I started with the murder so I started with the, the person who is going to die and then I work backwards from why did that person die like what had they done to get themselves in that situation. Who did it to them? Why did they do it in the way that they're going to do? Because both are locked room mysteries. They're both impossible deaths. I love reading those. I love writing them. But it's very hard to come up with a reason why somebody would kill someone in such an elaborate fashion. So I try to come up with a good reason for that, at least something that will feel satisfying. Because it is a book. You are allowed to have a sort of like heightened reality in that. And then I work backwards from there. So how was it done? What, was, what would have been needed to do it? You know, how do all these things work? And once I have all of that stuff, it leads me almost to the front of the book. Like, it leads me almost to the very first page because that's when I start layering clues in. And then if you're going to start layering clues in, then you've got to layer red herrings in. Well, that's easy. So you start thinking about who are all the people who would be involved with this character? How would they be involved? Why would they hate them? And once you know who hates a person, you begin to see how are they related? What is the, how do they converse with them? How do they talk to them? What did that person do to that person? And their personalities build out of that. I also have the massive advantage of, I genuinely like people. Like I genuinely do like talking to strangers and finding out. I have a curiosity about people's interior lives. Um, and I, I used to be a travel journalist. So I traveled all over the place. I've talked to hundreds of possibly thousands of people and generally got to know a lot, a lot of people. So when I can write characters, I am fascinated by the details of them. I'm fascinated by the details of the thought process and what led them to the moments, what led them to these places, what will they do, what decisions will they make in a given moment. So I do tend to write lots of characters, and I do tend to write them quite complicated and have a lot of details. And then I use that. I always make sure that every one of those characters is in some way connected to my 
to my plot, to my murder. And once you've got that, the entire book kind of, it doesn't write itself by any means, but you begin to see the cobwebs, the web, as you described it, it just comes out of that. It just almost forms itself. It's a really tricky thing to explain because it's almost writing by feel rather than writing through any um, technique. I think that's the thing. So you're, it, it, it doesn't look like writing through feel. It looks like writing through meticulous technique, mm. which is a compliment, by the way. But it, it, it feels like a finely tuned machine re- machine reading one of your books. Oh, thank you. Because I, I always wonder, I always think I could never write a whodunit because I, I don't know how people, people do it. I don't know how people come up with these intricate plots. I, I just don't. I can't see how people do that. But your plots are so much more kind of intricate and, and baroque and elegant than, than anyone else's <laughs> that's doing this stuff that I, I, I'm kind of in awe of the uh, of how many plates you're spinning in the narrative. No, I really appreciate that. That's lovely of you to say. To be honest, a lot of that comes from, I love Baroque mysteries. Like I love, as I said earlier, I love locked room mysteries. But also I edit the living fuck out of my books. So like I, and I never <laughs> stop editing. So everything I write, every line, every paragraph, every page will be edited to the nth degree. So my writing process effectively is that I start, I'll write for half a day and I'll edit for half a day. And the half day's editing will be to edit the things that I wrote the day before. So I'm constantly on that cycle. So I, I wonder if that maybe explains why this they do feel, um, like there does feel there's some technique to it because I don't, I, I love, I love beautiful writing. It's, I read a lot of literary fiction. I like a beautifully put phrase. Even in a bad book, I will you know, I really admire uh, a wonderful metaphor or whatever happens to be in there. So I always want a little bit in that book. You can't really too much, I would say, in a, a murder mystery, even one with horror elements where the writing can be brilliant. You have to be wary of that because plot has to be your priority. And if you start putting wordy language in, it tends to obscure the things that need to be obvious to the reader so it's a it's a really tricky balance in that to get really beautiful writing really nice lines really nice metaphors without yeah confusing the reader and making the book even more and weird this is a hundred thirty thousand word book if i'd let the writing go it would have been one hundred ninety thousand words and that doesn't do anybody any good well, least of all me because i said i had to i had to sprint to finish it today before this interview so i'm, I'm glad you <laughs> shaved off those, those sixty thousand words it may have killed me but yeah but ne- neither book is short i mean this one comes in at something like 560 pages your your first one is you know nearer 700 pages in the in the, the mm. edition i had you know so in in two years with the amount of editing you're doing that's 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 quite a lot of graft it is and i think you're like I'm, now that you put those figures in front of me, I think that I've just shaved 200 pages off in four years, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. So maybe the next one will be a normal-sized book, who knows? I do have like big ensemble casts. I do have, as we said, they're not, they're not books that are short of incident. So I don't ever set out to write 500, 700-word books, uh, sorry, page books, but that's never my intention. And when I plan them, I just plan, as I say, because I start with the murder and plan backwards, I just plan to the point where it feels like I've covered all the bases and that everything is explained or not, and that I know the ins and outs of my story. And once I've got all that, I stop planning and start writing, but I never have any idea how long they'll come out. And every time somebody asks me, they're like, you know, how long is this one going to be? I just say 90,000 words. I always say 90,000 words, and it never is. Maybe maybe the next one. Maybe by, you know, in a few years, you'll be writing some slimline 200-page 200, 200 Julian Barnes booker winner, but <laughs> I kind of hope not. 
What I would say, um, and for what it's worth, in my opinion, is, I mean, there are obvious connections in style and, and substance between your two books. I think this one is better because I really liked Evelyn Hardcastle and my, my wife adored it. She's smarter than me, so she got it. I think I was a bit confused by it. But, <laughs> but Evelyn Hardcastle felt like a story that was driven by a great plot idea. This one's got a great plot idea, but this one, to me, for I say for what my opinion's worth, has kind of more heart, and it's more of a mm. it's more of a warm read than a clinical read. If you know what I mean, it, it feels more of a a satisfying story to me, as opposed to a a kind of exercise. And that's not in any way to criticise your first book. It's just to say how much I like this one. I, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. Those two things are completely intentional as you can imagine and i'm really happy you said it because that was my a my starting goal for my second book was that for myself as a writer seven deaths was i put myself through the ringer to write that book the intellectual exercise of writing it was brilliant it was really challenging and it was really great fun i wanted that part again but i didn't want the time travel shenanigans and i think a lot of people wanted me to write the eight deaths of evelyn hardcastle or they wanted me to do something incredibly similar and i just didn't want to put myself in that box i wanted to sort of challenge myself as a writer in a different way but also write a story that was like 90 degrees so i know this one's a murder mystery and i know the other one is a, a sort of it's also a murder mystery but the surrounding genres are actually completely different so i do feel like i slightly in a weird way, I've written in two completely different genres and I've really gone off on an entirely different channel. This one is, the reason we're talking today is because it's a murder mystery with a real horror bent to it and the other one had a sci-fi bent to it. So I had to relearn a lot of stuff during my writing. I had to work out different ways of pacing the book and what would be expected. And actually, as a writing challenge, this one, merging the horror and the murder mystery elements was far more tricky, as it turned out, than merging the body swapping, time travel, Agatha Christie stuff of Seven Deaths. So it was fantastically entertaining to write because every day there was a new problem to solve. But yeah, I wanted it to be within all that. I wanted it to have heart. The characters in Seven Deaths were vile and purposely so because of the situation they were in. I wanted every character in this to feel like they you, they were somebody, there are obviously exceptions to this, but they, they I want them to be people you go to the pub with. I want them to be people you feel like you could sit down and have a laugh with and who would be entertaining. And I wanted that sense of camaraderie on a box. It's a boat, and I feel boats have this sense of camaraderie, so I wanted that to be part of the story. So almost in every aspect, I wanted this book to feel like a complete change of pace from Seven Deaths. And I do think, I really, I, I'm, I'm desperately proud of this book because I do think I managed to pull that off. I, th- I think one of the things that gives it real heart is the, the sort of central pairing. You've got Sarah, who is the, the, the noble woman that you mentioned. You've got um, Sammy Pips, who is the greatest detective in the world. And you've got his his Watson, so to speak, Arendt. Am I pronouncing that right? Is it Arendt? Yeah. Yeah, Arendt. What prompted you to create like a Sherlock and Watson duo? Because it's, it's unambiguous. I mean, you either, even the fact that they, you know, they write that their stories are are written down and released for public consumption, things like that, which is, you know, mm. very, very Holmes and Watson. What prompted you to uh, create your own version? There's a couple of things actually that played into it. The, um, the first Seven Deaths was a kind of real riff on an Agatha Christie Golden Age mystery. And in my own personal reading history, it was, it started with Agatha Christie, it moved on to um, Sherlock Holmes, and then it 
moved on to Stephen King. That was kind of like the route through. And I think that's a route through a lot of authors I've talked to took a similar sort of route. So it kind of felt natural to me that the next second book I would write would be a sort of Sherlock Holmesy style mystery rather than the Agatha Christie mystery that I'd just written. So that was one part of it. My second part was that I think Sherlock Holmes is a dick. Like, I, <laughs> I, I really do slightly have a problem with Sherlock Holmes. I loved the adventures and I loved the stories. But, you know, I mean, these are old spoilers, but there's a case where somebody trains a snake to kill somebody. That is just stupid. Like, it's just, there are occasionally ones where Conan Dodd, you can just see him at two o'clock in the morning after a few beers, just being like, no one cares. And he just, like, this thing happened. I, I, and there was tons of these stories, so it doesn't matter. But there was always like things in those stories that I wished had been different. Even a kid when I was reading them, like you've got Watson, who is he's a war hero in these stories. He's a doctor. He's a professional. Like he's regarded as like he should be a very smart man, but he's constantly throughout the novel treated as being stupid. Like he just can't tie his own shoes, and it just made no sense to me. You've got Inspector, um, is it Lestrade? Strad, who is like, yeah. you know, he's the chief of police in the world's foremost police <laughs> unit in the world at that point, and he cannot solve a burglary, and it just makes no sense. And you get to the point where, like, the stories where Sherlock Holmes is, like, lauded as being a genius because he's spotted that something's written on a wall. Like, it's just insane. Like there's, And all every single time as well, in every Sherlock Holmes story I read, he basically, Sherlock Holmes uses all of his deductive powers to work out who's coming to his door, and then he becomes a bog standard detective thereafter. It's a, he just puts on a prosthetic nose and some gum in his lips, and no one can tell that he's Sherlock Holmes. Anyway, so the entire the entire set of Sherlock Holmes stories slightly winds me up, while also just hugely entertaining me. So I just wanted to put a few of those things right for myself, like just to I'd complained about them long enough that I was just like, well, what happens if you change those elements, like? what is added to the story, what's taken away from the story. It became a bit of a writing exercise for me just to see. And I really did want to push. I do have a personal thing about sidekicks. Like I like sidekicks and I like seeing sidekicks pushed into the forefront. Um, I like seeing them have more, you know, like it happens in Hound of the Baskervilles, doesn't it? They send Watson down ahead of Sherlock Holmes and, um, he just he buffoons his way through the first half of that novel and then Sherlock Holmes turns up and solves it and it just drives me mad every single time. So I just wanted to give I wanted to give Watson all Watsons their due a little bit, give all sidekicks their time in the limelight. Two comments on that. One, the speckled band, the story with the snake, mm. unbelievably was the centerpiece of my GCSE syllabus. Really? That, that yeah, yeah, that that was the um that was the level of, of tuition I got. Yeah, that, that was that was that, that was the that was the thing I analysed for my GCSE. I tell a lie. I went to a very good school. I'm, I'm very I'm very kind of lucky for my school. But but still, come on, you know what I mean? I know. It's, yeah, it's ha- every time we talk about that story, a little bit of me just gets riled up all over again. But like, how would you? I mean, how long? There's not a lot to study in that story, is there? Like, it feels like by the time you get to the end, you're just like, oh, right. He did that. That's fine. The, the bit I always remember from that story is I can't remember what the guy's called who who um sorry sorry listeners, we're going off on on a little like um private Sherlock Holmes rant now. But the um there is a <laughs> the, the bit where the guy comes in and bends the bends the iron bar to demonstrate his strength. Oh yeah. And then Sherlock Holmes bends it back. And it's just like <laughs> right, we've now got into a kind of 
Edwardian dick swinging contest with an iron bar. <laughs> it, it, it's very odd. There's a slightly James Bondy element to it all as well, isn't there? Because like he keeps Conan Doyle keeps having to give Sherlock Holmes like new skills every book to kind of prove that he's like this amazing dude. So like he goes from just being like a bit of a brain in a room to somebody who can like bend iron bars and is like a champion boxer and practices his own martial art. And- you find that he's a boxer randomly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's like they don't give what. At least in the early stories, Watson has to take his gun and go protect Sherlock Holmes. And by the end of it, he doesn't even need him for that. He's just somebody to be like agitated at. It's ridiculous. Yeah, he's the butler by the end. Um, my second point is: Have you ever read? Because you mentioned Stephen King. Have you ever read the the, uh, the Doctor's Case by Stephen King? No, I don't think so. Actually, it's a short story in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, uh, and it's basically one in which um, Watson solves the case. Oh wow. That's going on my list. Yeah, it's really good. It's only a very short story. I won't say I won't say anything more. It's um, it, yeah, it's called the Doctor's Case in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It's um, it's pretty. It's the only up until I up until your book. It's the only um, example I've seen of something where um, someone took on Sherlock Holmes um, and then didn't kind of de- deify him. So mm. it's, yeah, it's pretty good. How annoying is it that Stephen King's mysteries are sensationally good? That really really pisses me off. Stay in your lane, King. I mean, this isn't. I'm not I'm not enjoying this at all. Which ones are you talking about? Which ones do you love? Mr. Mercedes, lot. That, those mysteries are really, really good. Like, he's genuinely quite good at writing mysteries. Like, the Doctor's Case thing, is it actually a good mystery? Yeah, it's all right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a very short story. Um, mm. And it's it's much more a kind of... Uh, the showpiece is that Watson solves it, you know what I mean? But it's, it's mm. all right. It's as, it's as good as, like, most of the Sherlock Holmes stories. I'm, I'm going to get hate mail for saying that, but it, mm. it is, you know... I'm I'm the world's most obsessive Stephen King fan. It's ridiculous, but I'm not a lover of those books. Really? Ah, maybe that's because yeah, the, yeah. I I always gravitate towards mystery. I like I like the process of solving mystery. I love what it does to a plot. And there's actually quite. I initially thought there'd be quite a lot of overlap in a horror. I mean, that's kind of why I took it on, because I initially thought, yes, like a horror book is about discovering what the thing in the dark is and then eventually confronting it with loss of life along the way, right? And that's what a mystery story is. What's the thing in the dark? Who's killing who? Why are they doing it? Solve it, confront them. But it turns out to be not quite the case at all. So it was interesting to me that Stephen King, as he gets to this point of his career, is, is moving his plots. He's becoming quite mystery plotty rather than sort of supernatural horror plotty if that makes sense so let's get back to your book before we get into like the horror because we've been talking now for like what 29 minutes and you keep kindly referencing horror and i keep not engaging with you we will get to it (laughs) so my review copy of of the devil in the dark water includes a little bit of backstory that you gave to the to the idea Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure whether that is something that's going to be in the um the retail version but Either way, can you go into that a little bit for the listeners? What what inspired this this story? So it was inspired by the, a real-life wreck, a real-life shipwreck that happened in 1629. The ship was called the Batavia. Um, looking back on it, historians now think that it had possibly the first world, the world's first documented social path on board. Uh, the ship was travelling, as it is in my story, from... It was in reverse. It was travelling from Amsterdam and it was coming out to Jakarta. It got wrecked off the western coast of Australia. Uh, The captain left the ship to go and get help. And he made this impossible journey. Like, it's an incredible feat of seamanship 
um, to get this longboat basically back to um, Jakarta with like no navigational aids and just a few malnourished men to get him there. And he somehow gets there. But in the meantime, he left the um, the passengers in the care of um, like 200 people survived the wreck. Um, and he left them in the care of, I think, the chief merchant. And the chief merchant turned out to be, as we say, a sociopath. And he believed that he was being taught to, that God was speaking to him directly, that God wanted him to set up a kingdom on this little island. He, through like just cult of personality, he seemed to talk around some of the men on the ship, some of the crew, and they became his own personal butcher squad. And as the food ran low, they began to, in the night, murder passengers, and then overtly they began to murder passengers. They would bludgeon them to death in the sand on the beaches. Um, all the women were dragged into prostitution. It is the most horrific story that I have ever heard. So when I read about this, I was in Australia at the time. There was a massive exhibition in the Perth Maritime Museum about it. And it, as it, well, it's, I think anybody who reads about the story, it just lodges itself in your head. It's not a thing that you're ever going to forget. And when it came time to write my second book, it was just there waiting for me. But I didn't want to. Weirdly, I couldn't. It was too like for a horror podcast. It was too horrible for me. It was too horrific. It wasn't what I personally want to write. So I took the idea of the, the, the ship and the passengers, and I took the idea of some of the characters, because actually some of the characters do turn up on my... They've got different names and slightly different personalities, but the, the, the seed of them is in this true story. And I put them on this ship, and I layered over this Sherlock Holmes mystery, the Sherlock Holmes-style mystery, I should say, in this detective duo, and, and I put on a better ending, or a maybe slightly happier ending um, for my own purposes. So it came out of something that was incredibly horrific. And I think that is why we it's got these horror overtones in it, because I slightly wanted to reference in some capacity, even if it wasn't direct mention of it, the horror that inspired it. Um, but I didn't want it be I didn't want it to be about rape and just bludgeoning people's heads in on the beach. That's just not something I could sit down and write for two years. Yeah, it's just that this awful sense of like being out at sea and you are literally at a law the ship is a law unto itself. And that's something you get across really well, that this is this is a lawless place. And the stuff about the crew being on one side of the ship and the passengers being on the other. And if the passengers stray into the crew side of the ship, they're just fair game. Um, mm. Is that something that was, was real? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So it's slightly extenuated to the book. But yes, it was real. So... And it, it basically it was because the the captain of the ship, everybody and the passengers all wanted to be at the back of the ship because that's where the crew would need to get to if they wanted to mutiny. So they put up barriers basically to keep everybody in their half of the ship. But it was effectively accepted that you didn't go down to their half of the ship. They had like they had crew members who would sort of like govern it and they would, they were given responsibility and they would have been close to the captain and close to the senior officers. But fundamentally, those two halves of the ship didn't meet. And they didn't want to meet. Like The, the captain didn't want to deal with his men because especially this, these, the Dutch East India Company, or the, the, um, as it was in the day in 1629, it hired the worst people. It didn't, the company was truly one of the first proper mega conglomerates in the world. And it operated on principles that we would recognize today. So it, it wanted cheap labor. It didn't care if they lived or died. Uh, it put them on boats that were basically, you know, 
there were some recounts where like a third of the crew would die on the voyage. It's a 10-month voyage. They would die on the voyage and they didn't care um, because the labour was easy to replace. So the people who were getting on these boats generally were running away from something. They were they weren't doing it because, you know, there was no advantage. There was no reason to do it other than you wanted to be on a boat far away from the hangman at home. So the crews were generally terrible and they were generally only kept in place through fear of flogging or being just outright killed for their trespasses. So these boats were incredibly tense places. So that really appealed to me as a piece of atmosphere. But then throw in the idea that they were also a passenger boat. So they would ferry passengers along because principally they, they were merchant vessels and they would bring in spices back. But like, yeah, also throw passengers on there <laughs> and just like the world's most uncomfortable ships, the world's most uncomfortable quarters with this horrifying group of people. I can't imagine what it must have been like for these people, these poor innocent people who would have paid a fortune for these births as well to get on a ship with people who would have been leering at them and, you know, if you'd given them half a second, they would have slit your throat and raped your wife. Like that, there's a line like that in the book, but it was absolutely true. It's horrific. It's no spoiler to say that, that that there is a there is a devil that haunts the mm. margins of your story. I mean, it's it's in the title, so and I'm not going to ask you to give anything away, but there is this phenomenon, shall we say, known as Old Tom. Is any element of that based in any kind of historical legend or or fact, or did you just create it from scratch? No, quite a lot of it's based in historical fact. So there's a book that they use, or a book that turns up, it's called Demologica, um, and something akin to that exists. And again, I reference it in the book that King James actually wrote um, a version, and it was treated with the same sort of, to an extent, the same reference as the Bible. It was a font of knowledge about the world of demons, and it, it lays down who were the dukes of hell, who were most loyal to Satan, who... How do they operate? How do they corrupt men? They're all very different. There's pictures of them um, and what they looked like and what they wanted. And again, like it's a massive tome and it's filled with like, if you just read it and it just feels like these things actually existed and they were researched and, you know, people went and talked to devils and they found out all this information. It's incredible. So that was all real. And then old Tom himself is based on a demon called Astaroth, who was Astaroth the... I think it was Astaroth the Inquisitor, which is perfect for my book. So he, he basically asked questions um, and used questions to make people effectively hang themselves. The only reason I changed his name, actually, is because I wanted to have a bit of license to kind of play with the character of this devil and the way it would operate and what it was doing aboard um, my ship. So I changed it all the time because, again, these the idea was that these devils went ahead of us and people would, like, well, there's reasons why the name Old Tom comes up and things, but it just felt like quite a disarming thing for something truly evil to be called. Yeah, there is something creepy about it, about the, the mm. mundanity of it. I, I did like that. It, it felt like an old Germanic legend that may be, may, may be true. You know, it, it did have that feel, kind of like a, a kind of 16th century Slenderman sort of figure. Yeah, exactly. We also had to play with that initially as well because the spelling, though there wasn't a uniform spelling of Tom, um, in the early drafts, I had to spell it with a H, so T-H-O-M, and my editor took umbrage with that because she described it as a Shoreditch barista, 
and she <laughs> she wasn't happy with that spelling, so we had to change it to T O M. That's just a little fact that only uh, only fans of this podcast will know about that book. But yeah, it will be probably wrong to call this an out and out horror novel. And you are, as you mentioned at the start of all this, you 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 are known for smashing these genres together. It, this really evokes a kind of lot of maritime adventure writing. I mean, did you have any spe- specific influences from that mould in mind? And from the flip side, what horror writers kind of were at the, at the back of your mind when you were doing this? It's funny. The seafaring adventure part is actually the bit that got the least look in um, while I was writing it, even though it's a massive part of the story. In fact, in the final draft of the book, there is a note at the end after the story ends, and it's it's titled An Apology to Boats and History because um, of what I the liberties I take with both. The horror stuff I was far more keen to get right because I wanted it to have all the atmosphere and the tension and the and the, the horror of a horror book without actually being a horror book. I felt the same way about Seven Deaths, the science fiction in Seven Deaths. I did a lot of research and I read a lot of science fiction books so I could understand the tropes of a science fiction book and how the plots escalated and how they moved because every every genre has its own structure and if you start looking for it you will find it and horror does it as well um so i started as i said when i was a kid i'd already read a ton of stephen king but then i'd fallen out of love with him as i got a bit older i moved on to other genres the stuff that i went back to was more the gothic stuff which i think shows in the final book so i read stuff like i read the picture of dorian gray again i read dracula again i read the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde again um, what else did I read? I read a few. I read a lot of Shirley Jackson. I read what else? I can't remember. Oh, American Psycho. I went back and read um, a lot of that and a lot of Wilkie Collins as well. I can totally see the Wilkie Collins. It's got that kind of sensationalist novel feel to it. Mm. This book. Yeah, again, books that are not short of incident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the, um, so it was a lot, a lot of that stuff. And because they were the books that have, they're the books, I don't know how to phrase this without sounding like I'm giving insult. They are filled with incident, but people aren't dying every two pages. Things are building and building and building a lot in those books. And that's what I was looking for. And I was looking for that sense of creeping dread rather than, you know, actual something burrs its teeth because the problem with trying to mash up a horror book and mash up a and horror is such a wide genre so it's, it's quite difficult to say this but the problem i found mashing those two things up is that horror you want to keep your monster in the background as much as possible a murder mystery you want to keep your murderer in the background as much as possible but in a murder mystery all you can really do is start to like you know, a clue should lead to a clue should open the door but it can't actually ever get you to the murder until the last page Whereas in a horror book, generally more of the monster is revealed. Like even if you're not seeing the full extent of the monster, you generally have a vague idea of what vague shape it is, what it's up to, what the threat is, and you're beginning to get to how to defeat it. Mysteries want to keep hold of the secrets a lot longer. So I think that's why I went back to things like Wilkie Collins. I think that's why I went back to things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde takes a long time to spew what's actually going on. Reading that book again as well. 
it made me think about how wonderful it must have been to read that when it actually came out. Because now we all know what Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is. We know the twist. It's been used a billion times. It's part of our cultural reference. But when that came out, nobody would have had any idea. It must have been so shocking. It must have been so surprising. And that's like a really, I thought it was a really elegantly written, wonderful piece of writing. So, yeah, I think that actually stuck with me as well, this idea of, what is the how do we construct the book so that when the twist lands when the big surprise lands it actually just leads you to another big surprise it leads you to another big twist because that jekyll and hyde does that as well which i quite enjoyed if you if you ever get the chance to watch or re, or experience something that is like common parlance with someone who doesn't know the twist it's the most fun thing ever so my wife is like she hates anything scary i mean i'm married quite poorly <laughs> she she hates anything scary and every halloween she agrees to watch a horror movie with me but i have to pick things god bless her she thinks she's being brave and i pick things that are incredibly tame and a few years ago we sat down and we watched psycho together and it suddenly dawned on me about 20 minutes in that she had no idea what the twist was yeah and, and i just sort of sat back thinking this is amazing i get to watch i get to watch what the effect of psycho is on someone who doesn't know all the cultural apparatus around it and it's the same with jekyll and hyde like the thought of being able to watch uh, read that now for the first time and and not just have it in the fabric of your of the public consciousness it'd be it'd be amazing so do you read when you're not researching to write do you just read much horror these days for for kind of pleasure no, I'm the one who's going to get hate mail. I'll read. I've read. I've only recently discovered Shirley Jackson, so I'll read a lot of Shirley Jackson. Um, or I've started. I think I must be most of the way through that now, and I've really, really enjoyed that. But I generally, I tend to read quite a lot of literary fiction. That's just it. Just it's usually I enjoy the writing in literary fiction. I enjoy the sentence construction. I'm. I really these days. I'm in books for weird structures. Um, so something like House of Leaves, which could I sort of tentatively be a kind of horror, but I love I love things that fuck around with the structure of a novel and change the idea of what a novel should be and how it should present itself to you. That's what I'm always on the lookout for. But those books are uniformly very big and very difficult to read, and I'm a slow reader. They take me a long time. So no, I don't I don't read a lot of horror. But what was weird about it is going back. And this is not just to appease people who are going to send me hate mail. I'd forgotten. I think when I was a kid, I read a lot of Stephen King. I read a lot of like my first horror books. I guess you call them the sort of like Eenie Coops things and all that sort of stuff. And I forgot why I enjoyed it. I think again, books that have incidents and Stephen King is good at characters as well. Like he is good at, um, he is very, very good at people who have, you know, things to live for and things to avenge. And then I, that gets, I think that gets lost a lot, weirdly, in a lot of books that I end up reading because they become so obsessed with, or they become so obsessed with the minutiae of people that they forget to actually do things to them. They forget to challenge <laughs> them. So yeah. it was really, really nice to sort of like dig back into it and also just read a book in like three days. Like I haven't done that in years, just like picked up a book just read it every night in like massive jolts and then be done in three days and be like, yeah, that was really entertaining. I, I, I've got to the point with reading now where I read for a job pretty much. 
and it, it's become mm. quite a mechanical exercise. And then I've had a few books on the bounce recently because of this podcast, because of some reviewing I'm doing where I've just read just things that are just beautifully fun, despite the mm. fact that I'm reading it for a purpose. They're all so captivating. So I read Adrian Tchaikovsky's uh, The Doors of Eden, which is his brand new science fiction novel. Absolutely amazing. And like followed it up with your book, um, Devil in the Dark Water. And it's just, yeah, it's great to read things that are, that make you feel things, I think, rather than make you think all the time. Thinking's great, but you, ne- you need to feel things as well, I think. that's. Um... I think that's, I describe it to my wife the other night as having like a solely fibre diet. Like it's just like, just occasionally, I would like to go and eat a different meal. I would like to go and mm. eat something that's just a bit more, and I don't, I mean no disrespect to some of these books, but like something that is a bit more fast food either. It's just like, it's just there to be entertained and consumed. And then you're not, you don't have to think about it or be kept up by it for the next sort of like month. You're not going to be debating it with your mates in two years. It was just the, to scratch that particular itch. Yeah, I do share, you love the House of Leaves though. My my PhD was in experimental contemporary Gothic fiction. So I wrote oh. a whole thing. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote, I spent years like read, re, reading and rereading House of Leaves. And I remember one day I was just sat in my office on a Saturday morning at 9am with a hangover with a pen <clears> cracking <throat> a cold in a paragraph of House of Leaves. It was just kind of like oh. this Damascene moment where I was just like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> do you know what I mean? But it, yeah, I, I do love that kind of thing. Um, I would recommend, um, and this is this is a bit of a plug because I'm going to be interviewing her fairly soon, um, Emily Danforth has written a new book called Plain Bad Heroines, which is talking about smashing together genres. Imagine you take the worst witch the old 1970s tween books and smash that into House of Leaves. And that's what Oof. Playing Bad Heroines is. And I, and I can't recommend it. And it's a beautiful book to look at. Just it's full of like infographics and pictures and footnotes. And it's, it's a beautiful book to look at, but it's great. It's really playful. So I recommend that that's coming out soon. Oh, thanks mate. Yeah. It's all right. I'm full of them. Last few questions and I'll let you get back to your Friday night. I've got to ask this because I'm intrigued. So you've referenced a few times in this, well, you've, you've, you've alluded a few times in this conversation, but I've also seen you mention it in other interviews that you had a frankly terrible time writing your first book. Castle. <laughs> what, go on. What, what made it so terrible? Um, it was terrible because I, I just, I used to be a travel journalist. I was living in Dubai um, my job in Dubai was I was working for Etihad, the airline, and they would send me on holiday for two weeks of every month. That was my job. And it was the most perfect job in the world. Um, I just met my girlfriend, who is now my wife, thankfully, but we'd been together about six months when I had the idea for Seven Deaths, and it completely consumed me. It completely took off my life. And I wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to be satisfied until I wrote it. And I knew I couldn't write that book in Dubai. Just wasn't going to happen. I needed, I wanted the class system. I needed to look at these old houses, these British manor houses. I wanted to stay in them if possible. I needed to be surrounded by the gloom and the wet and all the other things. So I asked my girlfriend to sort of leave her because she was doing the same job as me. I asked her to leave her dream job for us to leave our dream job and then come back to London with me to this incredibly uncertain future. And I came back, I went freelance. Um, I paid, I took enough work each month as a journalist to pay my bills, which was like, and have a pint with my mates. And then I spend the rest of the week working. 
So we went from this incredibly jet-set, luxurious, beautiful life to living in a one-bedroom flat in central London above a children's nursery. So, like, we'd have to walk through the children's nursery to get to our flat, and I was writing to the smell of, like, dirty nappies and screaming children every day. My wife was getting gone, instead of, like, you know, going away to beautiful places for two weeks a year, she was getting on the tube to go to an office to do a job that she wasn't terribly fond of. And it put a lot, and we didn't have very much money. And it put a lot of strain on us. And the only thing, the only, it wasn't like I had an agent waiting. It wasn't like anybody knew what I was doing and wanted it. It was just my absolute confidence that it would work. And then after a year, that confidence just evaporated. And I just was just flailing. But by that point, I'd given up too much and was too deep into it to sort of give it up. And it took two and a half years in the end. So it was just a year and a half of just being terrified every single day that I tossed away the most most perfect job that I put our relationship under this amount of pressure and this amount of strain, that I was living a much worse life than the one I'd been living before, all because I'd done something incredibly stupid out of ego. And that feeling just didn't go away. Like it stayed with me, even when I got my agent, even when the book got a publisher, even when it came out, up until I'd say it won um, the Costa First Novel Award, I think right up until the point it won the Costa, I was still like, what have I done? Like, is this ever going to... And then once it won that, like, I, I settled down a little bit. But it's still... The actual experience of writing that book was just hellish because I put myself under so much pressure. How did you get up each day and write with under that cloud? Um, I had no choice. So... I kept promising my girlfriend, wife, that it was going to be great and that it would work out and it would make the sacrifices that we've made worthwhile. So I was lying to her, but I was also lying to myself because I was just propping myself up with whatever words were to hand. So every morning I'd basically repeat the same mantra and then I'd go to work and I would frantically try and and some days as you know, you have like great days and you think you've cracked it. And then other days you have terrible days and the writing's awful and you pulling this thing together seems even further away than it had when you, you know, you started. It was just, but I was too deep into it and I said the same thing too much and I had too much pride just to say, look, I can't do this. I, I'm just going to go and get an office job now and give up on it all. So it was just pure stubbornness and pride, really, that kept me going, but absolutely no belief whatsoever. Like, I genuinely didn't believe I could pull it off. I think there was a point, technically, where it must have been about three months before the end of the writing, where I began to see how it all tied up, and I began to see the genres. It wasn't that I didn't have confidence in the plot. It was that I wasn't sure the genres were fitting together. It felt from sort of chapter to chapter that it was a sci-fi novel, then it was an Agatha Christie novel, then it was a bit of a gothic horror novel or just maybe a more sort of gothic-y, tense novel. And they weren't coming together in any meaningful way. They were just jammed together. And I can't remember, I now can't remember specifically what it was, but I came up with an idea that fused them together much, much better. And I think once I hit that point, I began to realise that if I could just, if my skill were sufficient, which I didn't know it was, that I would be able to fuse those genres together using that idea. But it didn't make me think that I would actually do it. God, it must have been a nice feeling to win the Costa Award. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was pretty amazing. It's not the kind of book that wins awards. Do you know what I mean? And I mean that to the detriment of the awards, not the book. 
But, you know, like Sadie Jones wins the Costa, you know, mm. Zadie Smith wins the Costa, William Boyd wins the Costa. Like, you know, some some crazy genre mashup of, of Agatha Christie and, and, and Quantum Leap doesn't win the Costa. So it's, and you look at who's, like, other people that have won it, and like Andrew Michael Hurley for The Loney won first, uh, the first novel award, and Sarah Collins for the Franny Langton novel. And like, it does feel like, genre is now getting recognized more um with these things particularly dark gothic genres and and that's obviously a great thing from my perspective but i'm just chuffed that you know something i'm I'm just chuffed that something like evelyn hardcastle can can be recognized that way i think it it makes the book industry a more diverse and interesting place than as i say the latest 200 page julian barn navel gazer yeah i agree but also because i think my I can't credit my publisher enough for taking the punt on this novel. Like it wasn't a sure thing. By oh, sorry, Seven Deaths. Like sure, Seven Deaths. Like like Devil as well. The novel I've just written. These are not sure things. Like there was no, especially with Seven Deaths. We were just coming out of the um, the psychological girl on girl in a window, girl in a train, woman in a bind, whatever that entire genre. We were just coming out of that and. I had more than I had a couple of meetings with agents who weren't like they were looking for something a bit different, but they were taking a punt. Who basically told me like, you know, we're not sure what we'll do with this, but we'll try. I had a meeting with a publisher who was then like, well, you know, which one do you want it to be? Do you want it to be a science fiction novel or because you or a Agatha Christie because you can't have both? So for my publishers, just to effectively take the novel and wholesale and believe, no, we absolutely believe in this. We do think it's a place in the market. We do think that this can you know, that this can sell and there will be an appetite for them. Shows tremendous courage on their part. And I'm so glad they were rewarded for it as well. And like the judges rewarded like my publisher for doing it. Because then it meant that those doors were slightly more open to other novels that were trying to do be a bit more cross genre and were willing to be a bit be quite brave with the, you know, whatever the genre was and sit inside of the genres or pull in of the genres. I'm not saying it hadn't been done before, of course it had, like there's loads of people doing it. But I don't. I think the appetite has slightly waned for it a little bit, and I'm glad that there's been this resurgence. You mentioned the girl on the the other girl in the window, the girl in the train thing. I I will hold you accountable for my my pet hate in in publishing these days, though, which is the overly complicated title, <laughs> like the, the you know the eighteen coffees and thirteen bowel movements of insert whimsical name. I'm I'm holding you to blame for that no you can blame um uh the first 15 lives of harry august for that because that was basically the title that i ripped off so um you know if anyone's to blame it's the first 15 lives but that uh, by clone off which is a sensationally good book it's so 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 good well we'll, we'll give them a pass if they're good books but it, it needs <clears> to stop now while i'm here and while i'm just telling stories did you ever hear that this book was called the seven and a half deaths in the u.s so the reason that happened is because in the series, my book, three months before my book came out in the US, another book came out that was called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which you cannot, I have no association with this, the author of that. I've heard that's a wonderful book as well, but I have no association with that author. I'd never, I've never heard of her book. I didn't know it was coming. I hadn't heard that title. I didn't know it was coming. But basically, in a three-month span, you get The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And it, you just couldn't credit it. So 
we ended up like running around in circles trying to find my US publisher were a bit nervous and they wanted to change the name in the US just to bring some differentiation. And we argued back and forth and with so many conversations that we were all exhausted by the end and all we could do was stick an extra half in there and hope it hope <laughs> it worked. And I can tell you now it did not work. There is it definitely did not I get people at festivals. One guy, beautiful guy, he brought he brought me a copy of the seven deaths, the seven and a half deaths, and the seven husbands, because he bought them thinking they were a trilogy, which is wonderful. And he was like, "Well, you might as well sign this one as well because I bought them because of you." Which that could be, that could be worth millions one day. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so just anyway, I don't. Sorry, I don't remember how we got into that story, but it just always makes me chuckle. This is what we're here for. We're here for the little weird anecdotes. This this is what the point of the show is. My, my last question is, and again. I'm tiptoeing around spoilers. The way this book ends, I would say, sets you up beautifully for a sequel, if not a whole series of, of, of novels. Is that something you've got plans for, or is it just, are you just leaving a, a little get-out clause on the off chance? Uh, neither. No, I'm not going to do it. I can say categorically there'll never be a sequel um, to this book. I do that because I did it with Seven Deaths as well. Uh, I like books that feel like they were running before you got there and they will carry on after you leave. It's just my personal preference. I don't like stories that feel like they're there for you, that they only exist because you are reading them. Um, it's part of giving the world life along with the characters. So that ending was as much, it wasn't about setting up a sequel series. It wasn't about, it was about telling the reader, these guys are going to go off now and do something else. They're going to have more adventures and this world will carry on whether you get to see it or not. But I just think it's something, it's just something enjoyable for me as a writer to do, just to set these characters off, the survivors at least, or set them off on their merry way. Okay, that's cool. That's refreshing. So, do you have any plans for what's next for you then, or is that are you just taking a bit of downtime? Oh, mate, there's no downtime. You know what it's like. Like if you do, you get your, you get your little moment. Like sometimes people open the door for you just a little bit, and you've got to shoulder your way through as much as you can. So the door's been opened a little bit for me here, and I've got a chance to, thanks to the publisher I've gotten, the, the people around me. I've been given an opportunity to kind of write the books that I want to write without any interference. Um, so I've just been probably going to, hopefully when this comes out, but I'm about to, I've been signed up for another two books with my current publisher. This is with Raven Books, right? With Raven, yeah. Brilliant. And with them, I couldn't, they're brilliant. Alison Hennessy there is the best editor in the business. She just, it's just perfect for what I'm writing. She just gets it, and she's good at what I'm bad at as well, which is just spectacular. Yeah, so I'm really excited. I've got my ideas. I know what the next two books are going to be. Um, they're going to be as different from each other as Seven Deaths and Devil were from each other, but they're both murder mysteries, so they're both going to have a really complex mystery at their heart. But again, the genre, the surrounds of them are going to be completely different, and I'm going to try and stretch it out stretch that genre and slightly take it to a different place than it's gone before. I hope. I mean, the next book could be the book that I completely screw up and sinks me forever, but I'm going to put everything I can into making sure it's a good one. So to finish off, I've got my rapid fire questions, which I ask to each guest. Uh, I'm building a bit of a directory of people's thoughts. Are you okay to fire off with these? I just want your gut answers, the first things that occur to you. Yeah, of course. Okay. Number one, what was your gateway to horror? Hound of the Baskervilles. Excellent. Number two, if you could recommend one book to the people listening to this podcast, and it can't be your own book, what would it be and why? Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray. 
because I still don't think there's a supernatural horror book quite like it. And I think a lot of other works reference it in really interesting ways. So if you're interested in this genre, I think it's a good sort of foundation text. Yeah, I, I love it. Still, ever since I first found Wild at university, I just think, like you said, there's nothing quite like him. It's wonderful, isn't it? That's a, that combination of being beautifully written, but also like quite scary and quite strange. And oh, it's just a, it's just a wonderful book. I like just how amoral it is. Everyone in that book is a dreadful person, and I, I always mm-hmm. quite like that. What piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror novelist? I'm awful uh, advice. <laughs> Because everybody comes to this their own way, but I would say just, I'm not sound like an ICAD advert, you've just got to do it. You just, whatever it is, whatever the idea, however horrible, however bold, however bad, if you believe in it, you've just got to do it and just see it through to the end. And because if you want to be a horror novelist, if you think that you have the capacity to be any sort of author at all, there are going to be days when you just don't fancy doing what you're doing. And if you give up on those days, you will never, ever be the thing that you think you could be. And the only way to find it out, sadly, is just by having those terrible days one after another for a month or two months and still being there at the end of it. So don't give yourself any excuses. You write on bad days and you write on good days and you'll get yourself through to the end. And if you don't, you were never cut out for it in the first place. And lastly, my favourite question, what truly scares you? Not doing this the idea that i didn't make it that when i genuinely truthfully i've never been afraid of anything in my entire life i'm not i'm a kind of person if i felt the moment's fear i just run at the thing that i think i'd be afraid of but there is a bit of me that thinks what if i hadn't there is a, a parallel universe somewhere where i didn't seven deaths wasn't successful were seven deaths i didn't even finish it And that person, I'm terrified of that person. I'm terrified by that life. I'm delighted that we live in this universe because it's a great book. They're both great books. And um, I wish you all the the success in the world for your future books, even the bad one. (laughs) You're a very lovely man. I appreciate that very much. Stuart Turton, thank you for talking scared. Thank you for having me. So Stu and I both agree that the devil in the dark water may not be out and out horror but you know when you make a show like this it's important that you offer a little bit for everyone i mean after all you can only ask the same questions so many times about the same kind of books and and Stu's novel is perfect for someone who wants a spooky read this autumn but maybe doesn't want anything too disturbing or disgusting it also helps that the book is phenomenal right Stu plays with genre to such an extent that he's almost creating a genre of his own And I can't wait to see where and when he next decides to murder someone in some whimsically elaborate manner. Talking Scared has been going for over a month now, and I'm delighted to see that we've already built a small but loyal following. And it's growing week on week. As I said in the intro, it's especially gratifying to see people tuning in from all around the world. If any of you can, please drop a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, because it helps boost the visibility. Uh, And if that's not possible, then I'd just love to hear from you. As ever, you can find the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod, or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I'd love to get some listener emails to, you know, to hear what you think of the show and, and who you'd like to hear me talk to in the future. 
Also, if you've got any kind of questions you want me to throw to previous guests, I can do that. Basically, get in touch. I want to know what you think. We have got some incredible guests coming up in the next few weeks, like big names attached to some really big autumn and winter releases, and I'm excited for you to hear them. But for now, shiver your timbers, drink your rum, man the topmast, and watch the horizon. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. (laughs) 